Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 76, Revelation, the Prayers of the Saints. And in this episode, we are going to look at the first five verses of Revelation chapter 8, which consists of the Lamb opening the seventh seal. And what I'd like to do in this episode is to simply highlight for us the importance of the prayers of the saints. Why are they praying in Revelation 8? What relationship do their prayers have to the judgments of God in the world? Again, what is the intention of judgment? How do the hearts of those who are praying, how have those hearts been shaped by the gospel? And how does that shape the way they choose to pray? And so we're going to take a look at the silence that takes place in heaven for about a half an hour, we're told, in verse 1. And then dive in just a little bit into the nature of prayer, why it's so important, and what it looks like to do it faithfully. So let's just jump right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 8, 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, as we get into this week's episode, I just want to warn you a little that my thoughts are a bit scattered. Um, This week, I have been fairly busy and thinking about how to prepare for this and all of the things that I could say, and so I may um, keep my ramblings to a minimum today, but This is very interesting when it comes time to um, shift once again in the book. And it it really does seem that that things are taking a slightly different direction. One of the very first things you notice when you look at Revelation 8 is that the Lamb is opening the seventh seal and virtually nothing is happening. um, Except there's this silence and then seven trumpets are introduced. And we're going to see what those trumpets consist of um, from Revelation 8, 6 and on. But if you notice that this seventh seal is simply introducing us to some reality and some reality that's going to shape the way we understand these trumpets, and we'll get to that in a moment. But you notice that it says there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. And if you remember back, it's been several episodes, I know, but it, it, as I would always encourage you to you know, go back and reread Revelation 1 through 7 just to catch up to where we are in this passage and remind yourselves of the things we've talked about so far. But if you go back to Revelation 4, you might remember that there are rumblings and peals of thunder coming from the throne in heaven. We're told that in chapter 4. In verse 5, and that the four living creatures, verse 8 tells us, day and night never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And one of the things that I may have pointed out at the time is that what we had in Revelation 4 was a profound vision of otherworldly creatures and divine beings uh, centered around and gathered around the throne of God and who is conspicuously absent from that scene 
um, but are human beings. And so what you have in heaven is this consistent, constant um, noise, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, what you know from Revelation 4 is that there is lots of noise in heaven and that it is happening constantly and it is not coming from us. It's coming from creatures that God has made. The whole earth screams out in the presence of God. And yet in Revelation 8.1, we are told that there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. You might think about the silence as the calm before the storm. For God's enemies on the earth, it's a silence of dread. But for those who dwell in heaven, as Revelation often refers to the saints, this is a silence of eager expectation. But what we know, since this silence is here, it ought to surprise us. It ought to arrest us. So like, wait a minute, there's been a lot of noise, a lot of activity, a lot of singing, a lot of praising, particularly at the end of chapter 7, and now something new is happening, something out of the ordinary. And this new something, this something out of the ordinary is that the ceaseless praise of the four living creatures and the rumblings and the peals of thunder pouring forth from the throne of the Lord God Almighty is put on hold so that a new sound can be heard. And the sound that John tells us breaks through this silence is the prayers of the saints. Now, this is something that I think is quite remarkable when you stop to think about it. That the worship that the Lord God Almighty receives in heaven, the worship that the Lamb joins in and, and the whole earth sings in celebration of both the one seated on the throne and the Lamb, is silenced for just a moment. And one of the reasons it's silenced is to draw our attention to what is being heard in these first several verses of Revelation chapter 8. Now, the Old Testament has a couple of examples of times when silence was a significant part of what was taking place. Think of Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13, that says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. It's very possible that John has a little bit of Zechariah in mind when he's writing Revelation 8. Or think of Psalm 62, verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And then in Psalm 18, verse 6, a psalm that we have referenced before, particularly at looking at the way that the Lord God rouses himself from his holy habitation and comes down to save David in his distress. But it says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. What I think is so powerful about what John is doing, particularly by referring to this moment of silence, is that it is from the temple the Lord is able to hear our voices and our cries to him reach his ears. There's a point at which we already know that the saints offering up prayers for justice, prayers for deliverance, are serious prayers that they really want God to listen to. And no matter who you are or where you've lived, there have always been the prayers of those who have been oppressed, the prayers of those who have been mistreated, and to know that we have a God who hears those prayers, who knows those concerns, who is willing to cease the worship taking place of Him in heaven in order to listen to those prayers, ought to shock us. 
It ought to humble us to such an extent that the God who made everything is willing to stop everything in order to listen to the cries of his people. Now, we've looked a little bit about the prayers of the saints already described in Revelation. For instance, in Revelation 5, it says, When the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here, the worship being offered to the Lamb around the throne by the four living creatures and the 24 elders are golden bowls full of incense, which John tells us are the prayers of the saints. And I love this in Revelation. This happens a handful of times, but where we don't have to guess with speculation or imagination just what the metaphors are that are being used because John just comes right out and tells us. So golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And incense was used in the tabernacle. It was perfumes that were blended together to make the worship in the tabernacle something that smelled pleasant. I mean, you might think of a of a scentsy warmer or some type of a plug-in or, or a diffuser where you're burning essential oils or something like that. In lots of our homes, we like the nice smells. We bring them in at different times of the seasons. And here in Revelation, we're being told that this incense, this pleasing aroma, is actually the prayers that the saints offer to the Lord. And so the prayers of the saints then are not only a natural response to the reign of the Lamb who was slain, as Revelation 5 says, but they're actually considered acts of worship. Our cries for the Lamb's reign to extend to the ends of the earth, to defeat evil wherever it still exists, and to recognize the struggle that the Lamb's followers are in as they attempt to live out their faithful witness to Him in the world. We know that He understands our struggles. We know that He sympathizes with our plight, and we know that He laid down His very life to set up His kingdom. And we want our world to reflect that reality on earth as it is in heaven. But we also know in Revelation chapter 6, the very next chapter, in the opening of the fifth seal in verses 9 through 11, we hear a cry for justice coming from those who had lost their lives because of their faithful witness. And we are told that their cry was coming from the altar. And so if you combine these prayers then in Revelation 8, um, if you look at the way these prayers are structured with the golden bowls full of incense, with the cries for deliverance, if you look at the prayers from Revelation 5, golden bowls full of incense offered as worship to the Lamb, and the souls under the altar crying for justice from Revelation chapter 6, these two insights support, I think, how we are to understand the prayers being described in this heavenly silence of Revelation 8. And here's what I think they mean. These are the genuine, heartfelt desires of faithful followers of Jesus that justice will be done on the earth. That those who care nothing for the kingdom of God or God's ways on the earth will find that they are no longer able to run roughshod over people, ruining the lives of others on their way to building kingdoms of their own. These are the kinds of prayers that the Lord listens to. Now, these are not, and this is what I think is important to point out, these are not prayers of vengeance. Angrily waiting and angrily wanting their enemies to pay and to take pleasure in their destruction. No, rather, these are prayers for justice, for right to be done, 
for God's ways to rule and for God's kingdom to expand. And because these prayers are for God's kingdom and not for their own personal vendettas or their own personal paybacks or their own personal vengeance to those who have wronged them, these saints are just as eager for justice to be at work in their own lives as they are for justice to reign in the lives of others. And I think this really shapes the way that you and I come to understand the nature of prayer, that we are not simply looking out in the world at wherever we see injustice and then begging for God to do something about it. That is partially true. But what we're also recognizing is the levels of injustice that exist within our own hearts and wanting His desire for justice for us to be as eager for him to work in our own hearts in rooting out the injustice present there as we are in wanting him to root out the presence of injustice everywhere else. Now, to give you just one example of a prayer where the one praying is just as eager for justice in his own heart as he is that God would bring justice on his enemies— Let me read for you just a handful of verses from Psalm 141. Verse 2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, I, I wonder too if John has in mind this passage when he's comparing the prayers of the saints to golden bowls full of incense. I, I would argue that he does, um, although I don't know that for absolutely absolutely certain. Verse 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Now, I find that fascinating. For four straight times, my mouth, my lips, my heart, myself, he's saying to the Lord, Don't let me participate in any of the things that I'm upset about right now, or don't let me participate in any of the kinds of things that you would be upset about right now. And I find this amazing because the psalmist is going to go on and he's going to talk about his speaking out against evil, and yet he doesn't start there. He starts with himself. And so in verse 5, it says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Now, in this verse, it's fascinating because he's saying, let a righteous person point out my wrongness. It's a kindness for me. It's oil on my head. Don't let me refuse to be corrected. I want to make sure when we think about prayers, particularly prayers for God's justice to be poured out on those who stand opposed to God, that it is coming from a heart that is as eager for God's opposition to injustice to work in us as we are hopeful that he will work in someone else. And he goes on, Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words. For they are pleasant. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord, in you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. 
Now, what I really love, again, about this psalm is how the psalmist is understanding that his own heart is just as susceptible to the wicked ways of those outside of him, and that the Lord is aware of both the external oppression that this man might be experiencing as well as the oppression that this person himself might be inflicting on someone else. And his heart is simply to open himself up to God in that way. And I would like to challenge us as prayers for God's justice in the world by, by pointing this out. One of the clearest ways, I think, to tell whether a person's prayers are rooted in God's justice or whether they are rooted in their own justice is to simply ask how willing the one praying is to have God deal with his or her own sins in the way they are asking him to deal with the sins of others. Now, this really is all over Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. For example, Matthew 7, verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, our, our thoughts and attitudes toward other people, if you remember the very first verse in Matthew 7, it's, Do not judge or you will be judged. Our thoughts and attitudes toward other people are always in direct proportion to our thoughts and attitudes toward ourselves. And in my mind, one of the greatest tragedies is when those professing the name of Jesus spend more of their time and energy pointing out the sins of others than they do owning up to their own sins. You know, it's almost as if many people act as though Jesus said the log was in our brother's eye and the speck was in our own instead of recognizing that Jesus actually said the exact opposite. Listen to the next three verses in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, again, these might be familiar words to many of you. In fact, Matthew 7 is one of the more commonly known passages in the Bible for Christians and non-Christians. But I wonder how many of us take it seriously. I wonder how many of us, when we compare ourselves and our own life, look at those who do not claim to know God or do not claim to be following Him and truly see in ourselves more sin than we actually see in those outside of us. You know, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to compare the life of a person and their behaviors versus their heart attitudes and compare it somewhat like an iceberg. And what those who, are, who study that particular field, what they inform the rest of us is that roughly 90% of icebergs are below the surface of the water, despite how large they appear when you see them floating on the surface. But if 90% of the iceberg is below the surface, then the all that I am looking at when I see an iceberg is 10%. And I think that's fairly accurate to say in terms of human relationships. When you see behaviors of a particular person at work, you are looking at the behaviors of 10% of what's going on within their heart, which produces those behaviors. But you and I ought to know our own hearts better than anybody else's. And so when we look at our, their actions and see that those are only 10% of what's actually going on below the surface, it's pretty stunning to realize that there's a 90% going on within our own self 
And since we should know that self better than anything else, we ought to be able to look at our own lives and recognize even more sin. In fact, I think this was what Paul did when he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. How many of us like to spend our time identifying those outside the faith as the chief of sinners? I think we've got it backwards. So this is why Paul tells the Christians in Rome not to take matters of payback into their own hands. This is why prayer is here. So this is what Paul says to the Roman Christians in Romans 12, 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is stunning to me. Here's Paul, fully aware of injustice and mistreatment going on in the lives of Roman Christians, and he clarifies a very fine tightrope that followers of Jesus are to walk. And it is this. We hate injustice. That's true. And we fight against it. That is also true. But we are not to take it upon ourselves to avenge ourselves or to get even or to make sure that someone else pays for the things that they have done. Vengeance, Paul says, is God's job, not ours. Because the truth is, we don't know all of the factors involved. We don't see as God sees. We don't see the 90% of the iceberg below the surface of the human heart to know what it is that is causing those behaviors to be the way they are. And so we do not take it upon ourselves to mete out their punishment. Because to do that would be to engage in the same corruption that led to the oppression in the first place. So instead of concerning ourselves then with just how the oppression in our midst, you know, the oppressors in our midst are going to get what's coming to them, Paul tells us that our job is to love our enemies, care for them, treat them with such an outpouring of love, kindness, and generosity that we literally burn the evil right out of them, just like hot coals. And in this way, we are not overcome or, as Revelation likes to say, conquered by evil, but rather we conquer or overcome evil with good in the same way Jesus did, all the way to death, even death on a cross, praying for the forgiveness of those who nailed him there so that he took nothing but purity to the grave and was able to raise up victorious over all sin and all death. Now, If that's our calling as disciples and how we are to live our lives, wouldn't you think our prayers would reflect this as well? This is what Revelation 8 is getting at. By looking at these prayers, we offer them up. An angel comes. He takes these prayers of ours, offers them up to the Lord, and then he turns and he casts them down towards the earth. And so what we're going to see as we begin to work our way through Revelation 8 and Revelation 9 is to look at what the judgments of God are aimed at Number one, in restoring justice to the earth, in bringing vengeance on the enemies of God's ways and God's kingdom. And we're going to see how the prayers of the saints 
tie in with that. And that's a humbling reality to talk about, particularly in our society right now where people really do want to um, demonize those they disagree with and think that their prayers are somehow going to, in a self-righteous way, rise above um, the actions of others and somehow condemn those people. That's not the attitude here. The attitude is like the souls under the altar in Revelation 6 or the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, prayers wanting both the world to fall down and worship the Lamb and prayers recognizing that the Lamb's kingdom, those in the world are making a mockery of His sacrifice when those who have been mistreated and who have since died as a result aren't able to get justice in this life. And so the prayers of the saints are the best way to think about this. What is our stance toward those who actually oppress others? Maybe some of us are oppressors and we don't even realize it. Or there are subtle ways where we feel we've been oppressed. Well, the last verse from the psalm I read, I think, captures the idea of what our stance should be toward those who actually oppress other people. And verse 10 of Psalm 141 simply says, Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. This is the prayer. This is how the psalmist wants himself to be protected by God. Again, not not hiding his own sins and realizing that God could just as easily judge him and discipline him for the same sins. That's why he begins the psalm by pouring his own heart out before the Lord first. But here's his prayer for how he desires the wicked to have what's coming to them, for lack of a better way to put it. Let the wicked fall into their own nets. In other words, let the systems that they've created, those oppressive systems that only advantage them, let those very systems crumble so that those trusting in those systems can experience the, pres- the oppression that they cause and see that what they thought was good and right is in fact evil and wrong. But we don't hope that they see this so that they will be destroyed. We don't pray hoping for God to unleash hell on them so that they will be completely annihilated. Rather, we hope that they fall into their own nets so that they see their faulty ways in this world and promptly turn from them. You know, when Peter says to Jesus, when Jesus is being arrested, Peter pulls out his sword and attempts to fight off those who are trying to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. The only way to convince someone who believes that the sword is the way to accomplish God's will in the earth is to let them see the despicable destruction and the damaging effects that carrying a sword actually has in this world. Only that will cause a fierce sword carrier to lay his sword down. And in that sense, the death and destruction that have come as a result of the decision to pick up that sword is all by itself a form of the wrath of God. And so what's happening here is that there is a similarity between this scene in Revelation 8 and that of the fifth seal. In both instances, the prayers of the saints rise up to God from the altar, 
which implies, I think, that both sets of prayers share the same focus, justice and vengeance against the inhabitants of the earth. And so this heavenly altar scene in the first five verses of chapter eight sets up the blowing of the seven trumpets by introducing them as the divine response to the prayers of the saints for justice. So it is important to recognize that what is about to follow in these trumpet judgments, which we will see next time, deal with the earth, with the sea, with the rivers, with the sun, moon, and stars, parts of the creation that God himself made and to be used for for the good. God's wrath here comes in response to the prayers of the saints. But it is not wrath randomly poured out and indiscriminate in the destruction that it brings. It is wrath with a purpose. A purpose that is an expression of God's sovereign plans for his creation. And God's purposes are always to call people to salvation. To let them see the error of their ways and the direction that their sinful choices lead them so as to get them to repent. And we'll spend some time in next week's episode focusing in on just that point. That I said, and I've repeated numerous times now, but the contents of the scroll are the unfolding plan of how God will both judge and save the world. And since it is the Lord's will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and that the Lord does not desire the death of anyone, what we are entering into now is something that we need to be very careful exactly how we express the reality of this. The Lord can be both wrathful and merciful at the exact same time. How does that work? Well, Paul seems to explain it to us at the beginning of the book of Romans by talking about God turning people over to the very things that they craved, the very things that they wanted instead of God, the rewriting of reality that they prefer as opposed to the way God actually set it up. And as I shared with the outpouring of the four riders on the, on the four colored horses, when you turn away from the kingdom of God and you elevate yourself to a place of divinity, you actually bring about death and destruction in the consequences of your actions. Because to follow the lamb, who is the giver of life, means that you will bring peace and healing and wholeness to the world. To follow the beast who's the author of death, means that you will in fact bring those destructive elements not only to the world, but also to yourself. And sometimes having people pray that you would be able to experience the destructive consequences of your own sin, not to teach you a lesson and I can't wait for this person to get what's coming to them, but rather, God, would you show us that the error of our ways leads to destruction and death? Would you give us a taste of the reality that we are trying to create in this world by ignoring you and setting up our own kingdoms? Would you show the world that the decision to turn from you is a destructive one? And by your mercy, would you keep them from destroying themselves entirely? That, I think, is the faithful prayer of a Christian, particularly in our society today. It is not to get into an argument and yelling and screaming about which opinion is the best and 
which way of ruling the world is the best. Rather, it is to understand that if to follow after the Lord and to receive life from Him is a free gift, but to reach out and take selfishly for ourselves from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which brings certain death, if that reality is true, which it is, then those who consistently choose to turn their backs on the Lord will experience the natural death and consequences that come as a result. That is why I think our prayers ought to be rooted in the way that the Lamb chooses to rule by laying down His life for His enemies so that those who were caught up in their own ways and in their own kingdoms can see the reality of God's ways being superior and better and more life-giving and want to repent from the destruction and the difficulties that their way of life has made for them so that they too can become followers of the Lamb. This is how judgment and salvation work together. Judgment is never initially or ultimately primarily about destroying people. The destroyer is Satan. Jesus tells us so in John 10. The destroyer is not the Lord. The Lord wants to offer people life and wants to offer it abundantly. And that's the way I think our prayers should be structured. And so as we begin to look at these seven, seven trumpets, and then later we will look at the seven bowls and the heavy destruction and damage and, and um, wrath, if you will, in Revelation begins to pick up steam and it does so for a number of significant reasons. And I'd like to walk us through that as we go. But right here, before we jump into it, there is silence in heaven for a half an hour. Because the Lord wants to listen intently to the prayers of his people, crying to him for justice, crying to him for his ways to be carried out on the earth. They're receiving flack for it. They're receiving persecution for it. And they want him to come to their aid. And so as you pray for your families this week and you pray in your churches and you pray for our nation, recognize that the Lord is always at work. He always wants his kingdom to advance. He always wants his people to be as open to receiving his justice and his critique in their own hearts as they are in wanting the world to recognize who he is and respond to him. And if we keep our hearts soft and keep them open before him, we will have the chance to be on the front lines of watching him transform life after life after life in our world, in our churches, and in our families and so that's all the time I'm going to take for this week. I, I'm very thankful you continue to listen in. I know some weeks I ramble, some weeks I've got some very focused thoughts, and I appreciate your feedback. I got a great email this week from a listener with some fantastic questions uh, regarding some very practical things um, about how to live in society today based upon the things we've been talking about in Revelation. And so I always welcome those. Um, unbindingthebible at gmail.com is a way you can contact me there with any thoughts or questions you have. Got another rating and a review this week too from a listener who just said he happened to stumble upon the podcast. And so I love those stories too. It's neat to see how may maybe one of your other reviews from one of you listeners has helped him to stumble upon this podcast and find it encouraging as well. So if you are a listener and have been listening for a while and haven't yet taken just five minutes to give me a rating or a review, I would love it if you would do that. That really does help 
others to find the podcast. Thank you again for those handful of you that are supporting me financially on a monthly basis with your generosity and kindness. Um, I really appreciate that as well. And uh, continuing to love going through this book with you. So until next time, have a great week.